well. Uh, we're going to have our message now, so if you'd like to open up to Psalm 126, hopefully you've got access to a Bible somehow. It's always good to spend some time in the Psalms, isn't it? And the, the wonderful uh, book of Psalms that God's given us, and we've done that in January period. Uh, next week, Psalm 127, and then uh, and then after that we'll start our series on Acts, which will be really awesome. Looking forward to that. Let's just pray as we come to God's word. We thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the Psalms and the richness uh, that we see in them. And we pray that you would please help us to understand and, uh, and feel this Psalm today and, and lead us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, during the uh, final two years of my time at Bible College, I was studying at the Presbyterian Theological Centre in Burwood in Sydney, and uh, the PTC, as it was known, had begun in a church hall in Ashfield in the 1970s, but by the time I got there in 2010, it was in Burwood in an old renovated squash court, uh, which had been turned into a Bible college. And we had chapel once a week, and after chapel, we always had a community lunch together. I can remember one time partaking in that lunch with others on the top floor of the squash court, uh, looking down onto the squash court, and uh, Ian Smith, the principal, and John McLean, the other lecturer, were sitting at the table with me, and I asked them a question. I said to them, is Genesis about the creation of the world or about the creation of Israel? And maybe I was trying to be uh, a bit sneaky and confusing like Jesus was to the Pharisees sometimes. Um, and uh, I remember over lunch we had a big chat with, that, with them about it. And you'll be glad to know that I think we decided that it was about both the creation of the world and the creation of Israel. But today as we come to look at the psalm in Psalm 126, it's about Israel, isn't it? It's about the nation of Israel. And I want us to be thinking today as we look at this psalm about how Israel began, about the creation of Israel and where they got to as they got to the Babylonian exile. Uh, just like I was talking about that uh, with my lecturers that day. So let's get into it. Let's think about the story of Israel as we begin. Uh, we see in verse 1 that it says, When the Lord had brought the captives back to Zion... We were like men who dreamed. First thing I want us to notice there in verse 1 is that uh, the Lord is central uh, to Israel's story, isn't he? He's mentioned there in, in verse 1. And what had he done so far in the story of Israel to this point? Well, we know that he, he was the creator in, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, made the worlds by speaking. Uh, then in Genesis chapter 12, he called Abraham out from uh, the pagan nations to be his special people. In the book of Exodus, he, he calls Moses and he calls Israel out from Egypt to be his very treasured possession. And we see uh, something that might reference that in verse 3, where it says, The Lord has done great things for us, and we're filled with joy. Uh, one of the great things they remembered from their past was his saving them from the exodus and how that was such a great thing that he'd done for them. Notice also in verse 1 that it talks about the city of Zion. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that Zion was the hill on which Jerusalem was built. And so often in the Bible when it mentions Zion, it's talking about Jerusalem, God's precious city in those Old Testament days. Jerusalem was also called the city of David. 
And uh, we know from Israel's story how central David was to the whole thing. Uh, they um, didn't want God to be their king. They wanted their own king. And so God gave them King Saul, which didn't work very well for them. But then he chose David. And uh, such an unlikely choice he was. Not, not the tallest or the strongest, uh, but the Lord was looking at the heart. And he promised to David a Messiah from his line, a king that would rule forever, who would be a son of David. But as we go on in Israel's story, we see that Israel kept messing that promise up. As you read 1 and 2 Kings, you see that they kept sinning and they kept disappointing the Lord. And the Lord had promised judgment upon them when that would happen. And that's where they ended up, in the exile, in two exiles, uh, one from the Assyrian nation who came in and dispersed them, and then a few hundred years later, the Babylonians came in and carted them off to Babylon. And that's the subject of this psalm, isn't it? They're remembering the exile in Babylon. That's the context of this psalm here. The Babylonians came in and they ransacked Jerusalem, they burnt the temple, and they killed many Israelites and carted off others to prison in Babylon. If you read places like Psalm 137, you'll read how horrible an Israelite felt about the Babylonian exile. They were devastated by it. It made them feel like they had no hope anymore, like God's promises were unfulfilled. They were sitting in exile and wondering where God had gone. So that's the story of Israel up to this point in Psalm 126. Now, we all love a good story, don't we? Uh, at the moment, I'm reading uh, bedtime stories to Jackson. It's called The 13-Story Treehouse, which is a light-hearted kid's story, which is popular at the moment. But consider the story of Israel and the story of the Bible as a whole. Consider how God had worked in this little nation, Israel. Consider his promises which he had held out to them. Friends, we must know that we too have been swept up into this grand story between mankind and God. We're a part of it now and we too must make a response. So we've had a quick think about the history of Israel, but... Um, Israel's story continues as they go into exile, doesn't it? You see, they spent 70 years in Babylon. That's how long God told them that they would be there. And what happened was the great Persian nation came in and took over, and the Persian king Cyrus was obviously moved by the Holy Spirit and made a decree that the Israelites should go back to Jerusalem to build their temple. If you read the biblical books such as Ezra or Nehemiah or the end of Chronicles, you'll learn about this happening. So this psalm is about coming back to Israel from their exile. Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So we see there in verse 1, the wonderful moment as they were coming back to Israel, to their homeland, to the promised land of God, and they were overjoyed. 
a wonderful moment is recorded here in Psalm 126. Even the nations around were acknowledging that God had blessed Israel. It was a wonderful moment for them to be restored to their land. I wonder if you can think of a time or a moment in your life where something wonderful happened and you were filled with joy. Uh, Maybe it was when the recruiter calls you back and says you've got the job. Or maybe you're remembering the days that your children were born and the joy you felt. Or maybe it's just your birthday and that's a great moment for you every year. Friends, so with us and our salvation. So with us and our salvation. How do we feel about the cross of Jesus Christ? As we think of it, are we filled with joy? As we consider what happened for us on that cross, as we consider the eternity that awaits us, are we filled with great joy? Can we say, as verse 3 says, the Lord has done great things for me and I am filled with joy. Let's move on and have a look at verse 4. It says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Uh, Willem van Gemmeren uh, in his commentary notes this. He says, God's answer to their prayer here is a second outburst of blessing in verse 4 compared to streams of the Negev. He says, the streams south of Hebron around Beersheba in Israel were generally dry, but on rare occasions when during the winter months it rained even as little as one inch, the water ran down the streams with great rapid and often destructive force. And so he says, I have seen roads and bridges destroyed by the forces of these torrential streams. Streams in the Negev, he says, are not ordinary phenomena as much as they actually represent the sudden unleashing of God's blessing. See verse 4, restore our fortunes, they cry, like streams in the Negev. It's thinking about the blessing of God that would come upon them in their return from exile. As we move on to verses 5 and 6, we see it explains the season of the exile with the analogy of farming, of drought and of bumper harvest. Have a look at verse 5. He says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him the analogy of harvest isn't it of sowing and harvest see there he says those who might sow in tears perhaps there'd been no crops for years perhaps they'd been through a drought period but as we relate this metaphor to the exile they sowed in tears they'd been through such a horrible time as a nation but see there it says that they will reap with songs of joy They reap a bumper harvest, a massive yield, great quality and great quantity grain in their harvest. It's a bumper harvest and so they return with songs of joy. As we relate that to their time in exile, once again it's their songs of joy to come back to their homeland. If you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see the moment that they sing with songs of joy as the foundation of the temple is laid and their hope is reclaimed. 
Some of the oldies at the time did cry at the time that others were singing, though, because they felt the temple was a bit smaller than it had previously been. We see here in verse 5 and 6 with the farming analogy, a metaphor that though bad times come, God's salvation can bring tremendous joy. Israel was able to have joy in God and what God did for them in their salvation from exile. Can we have joy in God and our salvation from sin? We have a God who is faithful to his promises, a God who is mighty to save. We will find joy in his fullness. So read the Old Testament And as you read, notice the grace and the faithfulness of God in the story. As you read the Old Testament, follow the threads of the promises. Follow them being fulfilled. Follow them predicting Jesus. And be encouraged where you read that God is faithful. Trust that he will be faithful to us today. He is faithful. That is his nature. Faithful to his promises. And if you go and read the Old Testament, also notice the judgments of God and be warned lest they come upon us. So in the talk so far, we've thought about the history of Israel. We've thought about their context in exile in Babylon. But we have to have a think about what this truly means for us today. Because we're not an Israelite, we don't live in Old Testament times. So what does Psalm 126 mean for us in Griffith today? for us as we live in the new covenant with God. I wonder if you remember the story of a guy called Jai Tarima. He was an Australian men's long jumper who won silver for long jump at the Sydney Olympics with a personal best of 8.549 metres, which is probably a pretty long way to jump. Friends, when reading the Old Testament, we have to take a long jump. We have to take a long jump to Jesus. We must always make the jump to Jesus when we read and when we apply the Old Testament to us. You see, this psalm was written about Israel coming out of exile and about their joy. But for us, as we make the jump to Jesus, it's got to be about our joy in God and about our joy in the salvation that he's won for us with Christ. Now, we can all remember the story of Chappelle Corby, the lady who was convicted for smuggling drugs into Indonesia. And she was held captive in that prison in Bali for many years. Well, friends, spiritually, the Bible tells us that we have been held captive, that we have been incarcerated. Spiritually, we've been spiritual captives before we were a Christian, not captives to Babylon or to Indonesia, but captives to sin and the devil. The Bible says that before we are a Christian, that the devil has us where he wants us, that he has us blinded, that he has us in his kingdom, captive. The book of Romans talks about the reigning power of sin over those who don't believe as a power through which they cannot escape. And that's why it's so wonderful that Jesus has freed us from these things, As he died on the cross, he decisively broke Satan's power over us. He took away the power of sin over us. 
He freed us fully and finally from these things through the victory of the cross. So we have reason, like the Israelites here, to rejoice in our salvation, to rejoice in our return from exile, in our return to God. I think the application of Psalm 126 for us as we live this side of the cross is to develop joy in our salvation in Jesus. For when we were an enemy of God and captive to the devil, the Lord Jesus rescued you and delivered you by dying in your place on the cross. Does this gospel ignite a fire of joy in our heart? Do we understand the greatness of Calvary? I think one way that this can play out in our lives, if we do, is that we'll begin to live with a heavenly mindset and not just an earthly mindset. How are we going with that? Are we focused on this world, on our possessions, on our ambitions for this world, or even on our health? Or are we focused on our home, which is heaven, living with a heavenly mindset and not just living for this broken world? Friends, living in this way will change the decisions and the investments that we make in this life. And as we develop joy in our faith, these things will happen. Now, if you don't feel this way about your faith, I wonder, do you realise what you've been saved from? We've been saved from eternal judgment, which we deserved. We were once captive to sin and Satan. We were once unsaved. We were once headed to eternal death. But God had you on his mind. Jesus had you on his mind when he died on the cross. He died for you. He died to purchase for you access to the kingdom of God for all eternity. And that can never be taken away from you. Satan can never take away from you your eternal security because Jesus has delivered you by dying for you on the cross. So you can live your life now with confidence, knowing that your eternal future has been eternally secured because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that and do you feel that? Uh, I'm going to show my um, my age here, but uh, I used to really, and still do, like a band called Creed, a rock band. And um, the lead singer, Scott Stapp, has written a song called My Own Prison, which is a distressing song, actually. It's a good good song, like the, the music's good, but it's a distressing song because it tells a story of how he wakes up from a long sleep and he realises he's in hell. Distressing song. Friend, what would it be like to write a different song? To write a song about what it is like to wake up and to be in heaven. Because for the Christian, that's essentially Psalm 126, isn't it? We wake up to God's salvation. We're waking up to his glory, waking up to his joy, waking up to the eternal blessedness of the people of God. When we believe in the gospel, this is what happens to us. We wake up to the reality of entrance into heaven. What kind of a song would you write if it were you? A song of fear and terror like the songwriter from Creed 
Or would you write a song of joy like Psalm 126? Friends, let our whole lives be lived as a song of joy to the Father. As we experience the joy of the saved and as we sing the chorus of the saved. That's Psalm 126 for us, isn't it? With the Lord Jesus, we sing the chorus of the saved. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for our Lord Jesus, who courageously went to the cross to save us. Lord, help us to reflect with the joy that the psalm writers think of their own lives, the joy of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 